Well, let's pray as we start. Our gracious Father, we praise you that you have made us not like the angels, spirits only, not like the animals, a body only, but body and soul. Lord, we are unique and glorious as you intended us to be. Uh, We are in your image in a unique way. We thank you that Jesus Christ has himself taken on flesh and he himself has died and been raised from the dead so that our bodies might be renewed and that we would have our bodies forever, Lord, enjoying your new creation. We pray that you would help us to uh, be refreshed in this understanding of who we are as human beings and what it means then that we are joining ourselves to another human being in marriage, uh, the significance of this union, what it, what it promises, what it states to one another, what it models for uh, us. Uh, Lord, bless us that we may enjoy your gift, uh, and Lord, that we, may, uh, that we may relish it and that it will truly bind us, uh, husbands and wives, together. And help all of us, Lord, understand the nature of physical union in marriage. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you. Would you hand these out Mm -hmm. since I blew it, you know, the first time around? Okay. um, So basically in what I'm handing out is just the texts so that you can relate them one to another real easily. So... In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And in setting forth this principle, he begins to talk about the body. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is uh, for food. And God will destroy both, one and the other. Here's his real point. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So there's uh, one point you can make is that the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord is in a specific way for your body. And that's a very interesting statement. Hard to get at everything that he means here, but it carries with it the Lord's uh, approval of the body But it is also uh, the Lord's uh, personal, that He is what the body needs, interestingly. Even your body needs Jesus, not just your spirit. And some uh, bad versions of Christianity talk about uh, God not dwelling in your body. He just dwells in the spirit part of you. There's this compartmentalization of the human being. And because we're spirit... God dwells in our spirit, and that's the medium by which we know Him. But this is saying something very different, that there's a relationship that our body has for the Lord, and the Lord is for our body. But he goes on, God raised the Lord and will raise us up by His power. And of course, he's speaking here, He raised the Lord in, in his body, and he will raise our bodies up. So, one, the Lord is for the body. Two, he's going to raise the body. Three, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
So your physical body belongs to Jesus and is joined to Jesus. It's not just your spirit somehow joined to, to Jesus and your body's just tagging along. Uh, no, your body uh, specifically is a member of, of Christ. That's why he can then make this application. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Physical union creates a reality, Paul says, because of the nature of the body, the importance of the body. And it's not just that he becomes one body with her body, but notice he becomes one with her. You get that? Her. You're now related to her because of your bodily union. You have, you've created something between you because of bodily union. Why? Because your body means something. Your body is you. Okay? It's one of the things we'll say again and again. Your body is you and you brought your whole person to join it to a prostitute. And you are now joined to her. That's, that's what he's saying here. God takes our physical bodies much more seriously than we do. For as it is written, two will become one flesh. Now, isn't it interesting that he takes that phrase in Genesis, which applies to a man and a woman in marriage, obviously, but he takes it outside of marriage and says it's not just the commitment, the vow that makes marriage or makes you one. It is the union that makes you one. It's, it's crazy, it seems, that he would take this statement that is reserved and meant for marriage to take it outside of that and said, same thing happens if you join yourself to a prostitute. You're joined to her. That, that's a reality, you see. It, it can't be played with. It can't act like it didn't happen or act like there's nothing to it. You can't do that, he, he's saying to these Corinthians. You see, their, their view, <clears throat> informed by a kind of early Gnosticism and a Greek view of the body, is that... <clears throat> Boy, I need my wife up here to... Influenced by this, they would say, all that really matters is what happens with my spirit. And uh, the Corinthians were infected with a kind of realized eschatology where they, some of them, they felt like they were already these new creatures, already in heaven. And therefore, what they did with their body just didn't matter. So you could join it to a prostitute because it doesn't matter. It's just your body. Just... Okay, and here, here's the, it's just a body. It's not really you. It's not who you really are. You're the spirit. You're this inside person. Your body is just a leftover thing that you're going to trash one day. So what does it matter if you join it to a prostitute? It doesn't matter because you're a spirit. And you've heard me say it many times, the uh, 
kind of thing that can be said at a funeral where they'll, they'll say, I won't do the Alabama accent, but anyway, they'll say, Bill is not with us anymore. You have, you have a, a, a casket right in front of you and say, Bill's not with us anymore. Bill's with Jesus. And I always want to raise my hand like Tom Hanks in Big, you know, and say a little protest here that uh, this is Bill. Just as much Bill. Don't, don't say this is not Bill anymore. Bill's going to be with Jesus. No, the terrible reality is some of Bill's with Jesus and some of Bill's right here, right? Because Bill is his body and his body's dead and that's not good. That's not right. That body has to be raised from the dead because that's Bill, right? That's what we affirm. And that's what Paul is saying here, that the body matters because it's you. It is you. You can't act like it's not you and you can do something with it and it's not you. It's you. You become one with this, this person if you join yourself to her. It even quotes Genesis chapter 2. The two will become one flesh. Uh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. You see, he it's not just the body. He's saying, it's the body. He's saying, it's worse because it's the body. It's not less because it's the body. This is the great sin against your own body that you would... and. Part of what he's saying here is that you would demean your body to that point to say it's so worthless, I can join it to a prostitute. It doesn't matter. That's a, that's a sin against your body. And then he, he continues, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Whom you have from God. You are not your own. You, and he means here your body, your body was bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So you see all these things that he says that the Lord is for the body. He will raise the body. The body is member of Christ. The body is temple of the Holy Spirit. The body is redeemed by Jesus. And of course, therefore glorify God in your body. You see, it's just amazing what even when we I know if you're using a biblical term, soul, soul means in Scripture many times the whole of your person, okay? Um, and we speak sometimes of God save my soul, you know, but boy, we need to hear God save my body, you know, so that my body is His and my body belongs to Him because my body is so important. Any questions or comments here? Okay, let's go over to First uh, Timothy chapter 4, which you've got there if you want to compare it in any way. <clears throat> I always am struck by how uh, 
the, the, the way he describes uh, what he's about to get into. He says, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So you kind of expect, okay, this is going to be some form of Satanism. It's going to be, you know, uh, sacrificing children. I mean, it's just going to be really serious stuff. And he goes on. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So these people's consciences are seared. They're devoting to and require abstinence from foods that God creates. Sin. Anybody? Sex. <laughs> That's why marriage is forbidden. Because there is a pleasure like you know, pleasure of this bidding because it's obviously you can't be pure and holy and do that. That's why in the early church, uh, celibacy was celebrated, right? Celibacy was the standard. There was monasticism. There were nunneries and monasteries. And even the the clergy were supposed to be uh, celibate because that was the pure way to do it. And... Even Augustine, our beloved Augustine, held that uh, sex was sinful even in marriage. There you go. That was Augustine. But necessary for procreation. Now, how that would work, you know, (laughs) I'm not going to enjoy this, but we have to have a child, right? That kind of thing. Um. Some views, uh, Augustine didn't hold to this view, but some even held that uh, sex didn't enter in until after the fall. So, apparently before the fall, there really were storks. You know, they really did exist. <laughs> and this new stork movie is a return to, the, uh, to paradise. You know? <laughs> so, <clears throat> so, that's... But that gives you an idea of just how the church has been broken over this and, and how she has run from the whole idea of sex within marriage, um, and which we'll get to in 1 Corinthians 7 as well. But notice <clears throat> he says, God created Marriage to be received with thanksgiving, and that and it, that means the intimacy of marriage to be received with thanksgiving. Everything created by God is good, and it's to, not to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. It is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, here in First Corinthians seven, we have an extension of that view. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, the, this is, in fact, the, the, uh, the way it reads in the King James and older translations, and this is the literal Greek, uh, is it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And it was not, at one point, it was not... Uh, regarded as, hey, this is something that's circulating among you 
that it's not good to touch a woman. But this was Paul's statement. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. So that I heard in Bible study, this uh, older man that came in and did Bible studies at the University of Alabama, uh, he was just stressing the point that you young single men, it was good for you never even to touch a woman. Which, by the way, bad exegesis, but a good point. You know, just maybe you would would want to say that's a safe thing for you not to touch a woman. But, but to touch does mean sexual relations. So it's a good translation because that's what's intended, and it's not Paul's instruction. Uh, He's saying this is what's circulating around. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In other words you can have a pure life and you can avoid the entanglement that that would involve. Uh, and you can be more devoted to God. <clears throat> but he says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. Uh, talk about practical. That's down-to-earth practical. And then the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So the view is that there should be regular, uh, and in, in terms of 1 Timothy 4, grateful uh, giving of ourselves to one another sexually in marriage uh, and receiving one another sexually in marriage and to realize my, I have... And each of us has to think this way in a marriage. I don't have authority over my body. She has authority over my body. I don't have authority over my body. He does. It's a way to say, I will dedicate myself to serve you with my body. Because I'm no longer out for myself. I'm out to please and serve you and meet your needs in this regard. So a real radical way to say it from Paul. You don't have authority over your own body. It's not up to you as to whether you do or don't want to do this or that or when or where or whatever, you are giving yourself away uh, and putting yourself, each of you, under the authority of the other. And it's interesting, though, in general, it talks about uh, women submitting to men. This is a mutual submission in the sexual realm, right? Uh, So that he has to move toward her in the way uh, she wants to express, and he, she has to move toward him in that regard. <clears throat> then he says, do not deprive one another. This word is defraud. It's the word used in uh, 1 Corinthians 6 when they're talking about a legal uh, issue and one man defrauding another. Isn't that interesting? You can defraud one another in uh, marriage. That's... <clears throat> You can see it in uh, the word used in chapter 6, verses, uh, verse 7 there. But um, he says, don't defraud one another. Don't uh, rip off one another, so to speak. Uh, refusing or steal. It's, it's the idea of de- deceiving and stealing from one another what is rightfully his or hers. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, And though this is read many times to say that you may devote yourselves to prayer, that is, you limit your sexual engagement for prayer. If it is, if it does mean that, it means by agreement, both of you agree to it, and it's limited. So if it does mean that you're 
limit your your abstaining for the purpose of prayer. It's by mutual agreement and it's a limited time. And then he urges them, but come together again so that Satan may not tempt you. So, but uh, Gordon Fee, uh, I lean toward his interpretation of this. It's don't deprive one another except by perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Not devoting yourselves to prayer and abstaining, but so that you may stay devoted to prayer by not refusing one another, you see? So the point is, uh, you, you maybe you'll agree for a limited time for some particular reason, but uh, don't, do, don't defraud one another except for those limited times so that your general life can be devoted to prayer. Um, because if you're not giving yourself to each other, uh, he's saying likely your prayer life is not good and it's a sham. Sorry. Anyway, (laughs) sorry. No, I'm not saying that absolutely, but I'm saying that's a tendency. It's because we're woven together as body and soul and one, one aspect of your being can't be ignored without affecting the other. And that's not absolute, but I'm just saying it's a general tendency that he's saying prayer and your sexuality are wrapped up together. Your relationship to God and your relationship to your husband and wife are wrapped up together. And not just in general, but in the physical relationship, it's wrapped up together. Because we tend to think, well, it's it's all dependent on how I, I treat her and outside the bedroom, But he's, and that is true but it's also how we're treating each other within the bedroom. <clears throat> All right, so uh, here it's likely, as uh, Fee and others say, that women were, in particular, thinking of themselves as already kind of the angelic beings that don't need marriage anymore, and they're already there, and so they don't need marriage here either, and they don't need to have relations with their husbands anymore. And that's the context in which he's writing that to say uh, that that if you are refusing one another, you're defrauding one another. However you, you may think, I'm a spiritual person now. I don't need this physical body thing anymore, even with my husband. I'm over that. I'm beyond that. I'm spiritual now. I'm not this physical creature to be mired down in some kind of physical thing like this. You can see that attitude of thinking of the spiritual as so much better than the physical, even to demean the physical relationship itself. Okay, any questions or thoughts? Please help me. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, Brian. It kind of goes back to the first passage we discussed in 1 Corinthians 6, with you'll become one with her. I have difficulty with that. Does that mean you're married to her? No. You know, because it's like you no. know, the marriage language. Right. So, I know. To what extent are you one with her? And I know. How is that different than being married and being one with her? Right. I think some of it would uh, be reflected in the statistics of uh, young girls who are, in, you know, engaged a lot in sexual activity. And the statistics are really rough, you know. It's not... In other words, the participation in sexual activity has 
it tends to wreak havoc in their lives. You know, it, it tends to push them closer to drugs, alcohol, suicide, depression, etc. You know, I think that may be a little bit of a reflection of, uh, you know, in the, uh, what's the, what's the thing in Harry Potter that, uh, Voldemort is creating the seven things. Horcrux, right. So I think of it, <laughs> we got them, right? There we go. But I kind of think of it as like that is, you know, he's, the, the, the Horcrux is created, you have to kill someone to create the Horcrux. And he talks about you, you give away a piece of your soul when you kill someone. And I, I think that's, I think we'd have to say you, you really give something of yourself away. In a, and, you know, the, all that has to be put in the context of God's redemption and he rescues us and he forgives us and he renews us. Um, and redemption trump, triumphs over sin. So it has to be in that redemptive context for any. And many of us, including myself and my wife, uh, were engaged in immorality before we believers. And so uh, I just put that out there. It, uh, this, is, this is tough to talk about. You know, it is really tough to talk about. Um, but I think that's it's clearly what Scripture teaches. Does that help at all? It's a good point. It is. It's haunting. It's like, but I, I think it's a way to say you just can't ever think that this is not important. You know. Yeah. We we yeah Andy. Yeah, it could have been talking about it in that context, yeah. Um, that that you'd think it's... Uh, yeah, I'm not sure whether this would specifically be talking about that because prostitution was pretty rampant, yeah, you know. Because Paul, you know, gets caught up in the conversation of, you know, what are you going to do? You're eating food, you're not eating food, you're drinking. Yeah. You throw having sex, you're not having sex, who are you having sex with? Yeah, yeah. It could be that you know that's the added part of it. Well, I'm just going to this temple. I'm just doing this kind of worship, and it doesn't really matter, you know. Well, yeah, it does. Even in that context, this is something real, and and body has been joined with body. That's a good point. Um, Okay, so we come then to Genesis two, and. uh, We'll just get started in this, but this is really where I want to spend a great bit of time next week, having laid this uh, foundation. It should be then no real surprise that when he describes marriage, he describes it in terms of the physical union. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, his mother, and hold fast to his wife. And they should become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Uh, it's funny. <laughs> to tell you this one is funny. I did a a wedding for one of my best friends, and we were in the. I've told some of you this. We were in the Delta, 
in Mississippi. It was a hot summer day. And he had asked me to speak on Genesis 2. So there's that word naked, as we would say in Alabama, naked, you know. Um, so I said the word a few times in talking about how naked is uh, a sign of your vulnerability and your acceptance of one another, transparency, you know, those kinds of things. So after the wedding, they were talking to some of the, one older lady in the family, Aunt Mary, we'll say, who, you know, kind of the granddam over everything. And uh, they said, Aunt Mary, what are you going to do this afternoon? Well, I guess I'm going to get naked. He talked about it enough. <laughs> I, I picture her like the, uh, the inspector in Clouseau, you know, who had that little twitch when he heard the word Clouseau. <laughs> she probably was twitching every time she heard the word naked. <clears throat> um, but... Um, it, it, it states, of course, that he will hold fast to his wife. You know, sometimes the translation is clean. In Deuteronomy and Joshua, uh, we are told uh, to cling to the Lord. For instance, in Deuteronomy 13.4, it's in this cluster of words. You shall walk after the Lord your God, fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him, cling to him. The word stick is a good word. Stick to him, right? Like a, like a, a vine clings to a tree or something sticks to something else. Uh, Psalm 63, he prays, my soul clings to you. In Psalm 19, verse 31, he prays, my, I, I cling to your testimonies. And then maybe the most memorable use of this is when Naomi was trying to send off her Moabite daughter-in-laws, daughters-in-law, I should say. Um, and they, it says, they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, right? So Orpah kissed her goodbye, basically, and went back to her family. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth, clinging to her, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. So I think that's a really good exposition of clinging, you know, and what, what's intended in this statement in, uh, in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, and then also you see there in Proverbs 2.16, actually I think it, yeah, that's right, two, six, it begins at 2.16. You'll be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, uh, with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. So the marriage is described in terms of the companionship with uh, her husband, and it's described in terms of a covenant. And notice it's the covenant of her God indicating that he's the one who witnesses this covenant. He's the one who oversees and enforces this covenant. It takes God in consideration, this covenant. But it is a covenant. And so, with any covenant, there's a covenant action, right? A 
covenant action that's taken, uh, like God's great covenant action in Genesis 15 when he split the animal pieces apart and in the form of a fiery uh, smoking furnace, he passed between the pieces. And he was saying, as you know, may I be torn apart if I don't keep this covenant. And of course, this came to the most graphic realization as, as Jesus did was torn apart uh, by the wrath of God on the cross. Um, it, it also reflects that language in the Episcopal service where the man says to the woman, I plight thee my troth. I plight thee. And she responds with, I give thee my troth. You think, why does he plot, plight? And she, she gives. Um, the plight, of course, means uh, a serious situation. Right, his 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 plight was inc- increasingly dangerous, or whatever it means to be in a dangerous or unfortunate situation. What does that mean? That the man is saying, "I pledge myself to the unfortunate condition of being your husband." <laughs> I plight myself to you. Of course, she would plight him back if that was the case. But <clears throat> um, but what he's saying is this: whatever hardship you may enter, whatever need you may have, whatever sickness, whatever pain, whatever loss, whatever weaknesses whatever problems or sins you have, I pledge myself to lay down my life and all that I am to stay by you, to protect you, shelter you, support you, nourish you, love you. I plight thee. I endanger myself for you, you see. And in that context of endangering himself, then she says, then I give you my pledge. Isn't that beautiful? What a lovely picture of Christ in the church. How he, Jesus, in dying for our sins, comes to us in the gospel. And basically he says to us, I plight thee my troth, right? I've endangered myself. I've given myself. I've sacrificed myself for you. And this is a symbol, the emblem of everything that I will do for you from now on and how I will care for you. I plight thee my troth. And we respond, I give you my troth. I give you myself as you've given yourself. And so, amazingly though, in Genesis too, is this creation of the covenant. It's the physical union that is the covenant sign, of the, the covenant action. The, this, if, if you're going to cling to her, it must be first expressed in this graphic way. It's expressed in physical union. It encapsulates the clinging, right? It becomes a blueprint or pattern for the whole relationship. It sets the course for the clinging, in a sense. It gives a graphic image. It's like a living, breathing model of what you will be from now on, of how vulnerable you will be and how you'll accept each other and how you will enter into each other's lives, which we will explore But you can just see the beautiful expression of covenant that's ensconced in the physical relationship. Now, what we will talk about next week is how in the 
physical union, how uh, women need to do this and men need to do this. Okay? (laughs) Women need to bring the whole of their relationship and realize that it must be and it's joyfully expressed in physical union or they're Gnostic and they've divided between body and spirit. You see? And they can easily say, I can take or leave sex. I don't need it. I don't want it. That's, that's to divide body and spirit. That's to jump into 1 Timothy 4 and say, uh, and join with the spiritual women of 1 Corinthians 7 saying, I don't need this anymore, right? <clears throat> Men need to take the meaning of this, which is entering into your wife's body and say, I will try in some way to match the passion of that act in every other part of my life. To enter into your dreams, your struggles, your fears, every part of your life. To know you as something of the exuberance with which I want to know you physically. Otherwise, you're doing the same thing. You're saying, I just want this part, but I don't want this part. Now, this isn't absolute, but in general, in most of the counseling that I've done, this is a basic illustration of the, of, of the issue as it pertains to this right here. Now, we'll also talk next week about how many of the critical issues of your relationship happen here and begin to be dealt with here. We tend to think it's... Uh, how we relate to each other outside the bedroom affects the bedroom, but we also need to see that issues in the bedroom can heal other issues in our life and other parts of our lives. So we're trying to fully exalt body with spirit and what happens between us bodily and give it its full significance. And we'll continue to get to that next week. Let me, let me close this. Father, we ask that you would... Uh, open our hearts to welcome and rejoice in your good creation. Uh, Deliver us, Lord, from demonic thinking that downplays your creation, that downplays our bodies, that downplays the expressions that you've given us to enjoy that are critical for our well-being within marriage. Oh, Lord, help us to embrace all that you've made us to be, all that you've given in your creation. For Jesus' sake, amen.